So I want to share about the presence of God today. So Mark, thank you for setting the table. And Jerry and Kurt. In John 13, Jesus begins his final message and prayer with those closest to him. It's one of my favorite passages of scripture. I feel like as much as I've loved it and as much time as I've spent in it, I've horribly neglected it because it's just a wealth of information and of revelation about who he is and what his heart is. So in John 13... 14, Jesus is explaining to the disciples what this whole crucifixion thing is going to be about. You know, his death is going to be about their forgiveness. And he's walking them through the process of going to the cross, being crucified, coming back from the dead, and what that will mean to them and how it will affect them. And as he progresses through this in chapter 14, he starts talking about the Holy Spirit, how they're going to receive the Holy Spirit. And... I'm sure for them in this moment, there's a whole lot of what is he talking about right now going on. I mean, it's, uh, it's some of the greatest revelation in history, and he's trying to pack it in for them in a few chapters. So in chapter 14, he talks about them receiving the helper, the Holy Spirit, And then in chapter 15, he goes into the famous passage about abiding in the vine. So I want to spend a little bit of time in chapter 15 and then jump into Galatians 5 and talk about the fruit of the Holy Spirit. The presence of God. This is something we talk about, we think about intellectually. I think we agree that we know God is with us, but I don't think... We live in a daily awareness that he is with us. And I'm going to share a little bit about my own personal journey. I started out very much, um, 2005, I took a year, did nothing except seek God. I didn't work. Unfortunately for my wife, I met her in that period. I had no money, uh, no job. Meeting her parents was interesting. What do you do for a living, son? Nothing. I'm a professional. I'm a professional prayer. Um, so that went over like a lead balloon. Um, but it was it was entirely about the presence. And as life would go, things get busy, and the presence was always important and has always been important. But somewhere along the line, it shifted and it began to become a little bit more about the calling, the journey, the destination, the ministry, the fruit. I want to bear fruit for you, Lord. So as it went, this primary pursuit of being in the presence daily, constantly with God, it became almost an afterthought, maybe not the first thing in my mind each day. Instead, it was, I know you're with me, let's go get some work done. And there was a lot of work and effort and labor that went forth to bring about a holy life and to bear fruit for God. Somewhere in the last, I'd say, 18 months, God's presence, he started to say, hey, remember me? (laughs) And he'd start to show up 
and I had some of the most bizarre experiences. It, it didn't matter where I was. If I'd start to worship, if I'd just turn my attention to God, boom, he'd show up. And I'd be just, I'm weeping. I mean, you could feel the presence of God. It wasn't intellectual, and it wasn't even theological. It was experiential. It's interesting because in John 17, at the end of the high priestly message and the beginning of the high priestly prayer, Jesus tells them that he's praying to the Father and the disciples get to listen. Come on. I mean, what a privilege to know what the second figure of the eternal Godhead says to the first. And he looks at the Father and he says, glorify me now. And he goes on and then he says, eternal life is this that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Eternal life is this, what they would get when they die. But that's not what he says. He doesn't say eternal life is what we get when we die. He says eternal life is what we get when we know God. Perpetually budding, ever-expanding, ever-increasing life is what we get when we know God. And in John 17, 3, the word know is an experiential knowledge. It's not a knowledge of intellect or belief. It's an experience. Do we know the difference? The difference is that which when I'm in Montana traveling for work and I think about the way my wife loves me. And then when I get home and I get to feel her embrace me. The one is intellectual, the other is experiential. When I'm traveling, the knowledge of my wife is an intellectual knowledge. I have to believe it, but I'm not experiencing it in that moment. But when I arrive at home and I open the door and I'm welcomed with an embrace, I experience her love for me and it removes any question that the intellectual knowledge of that love might hold. Our knowledge of God is not meant to be an intellectual knowledge. It's meant to be an experiential knowledge where we get to feel his embrace, experience and feel emotionally his affection for us, and know experientially again that he is with us day in, and day out. John 15, <laughs> I've read this so many times and I've done such a terrible job reading it. I've preached it so many times and I apologize for how badly I've done because I always got hung up in the pruning of the Father. So let's take a look at John 15 if you have your Bible. I'm the true vine and my Father is the vine dresser. He's the guy who does the trimming. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I have spent so much time looking at the pruning and the fruit bearing. I know the Father's going to prune me. He's going to discipline, right, and shave off those pieces of my life that aren't fruitful 
So I'd work so hard to be fruitful, not wanting to lose certain parts of my life that are valuable. Yeah? Amen? No one else? Okay. I'll be alone in this. That it may bear more fruit. So then an area of your life is pruned and you go, I'm going to be more fruitful for you, God. I'm going to hold another Bible study. We're going to do prayer meetings on this day of the week. We're going to do this. We're going to hold small groups. And we're going to be fruitful for you, God. The interesting thing, though, about a vine is that it requires no effort to be fruitful. For a vine to bear fruit requires nothing of the vine itself other than it's rooted in the branch, in the true vine. You see, I look around at so much of our activity and see how we work so hard to be the kind of Christian that we think God expects us to be. We want to act rightly. We want to bear and live out the expression of the Holy Spirit. Yeah, goodness, faithfulness, kindness, gentleness. You guys know all of them. They're up on everybody's walls. It's our reminder to work harder to be a good Christian. We want to be fruitful. We want to have people that enter the kingdom of God eternally because of our lives. We want to see miracles and healings and and share the heart of God with the world. And we work so hard to do that. And we miss out on the experience of the presence and we fall short in our efforts to live up to a spirit-filled, godly life because we're pursuing it in the wrong order, and we think that fruitfulness and holiness is somehow a reflection of our effort rather than just the fruit that naturally comes from those who abide in the vine. See, I cruised right by this passage, but it's John 15, 4, Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. When we're not abiding, we cannot bear fruit. Cannot. Our efforts are largely meaningless. It's really quite grievous. Bless you. If you look back, I mean, it's a Christian service. You've got to say bless you when he sneezes. If you reflect on the way that, if I reflect on the way that my efforts have gone, so much of it has gone into work hard, hustle your butt off, grind it out, go for it, take risks, live in faith, let the Holy Spirit come out, so now I got to be good, and I'm, every, every decision I make, I'm analyzing, okay, was that good or was that not? I don't know if it was good, I just can't figure this out. Faithful, was I faithful? I think I was faithful, but... You know, I've only been at this for, you know, 18, 19 years. I don't know if that's faithful. Is this faithful? Am I being faithful? I'm not sure if I'm faithful. I'm trying to be faithful, Lord. I'm just not sure. And he comes back and he says, just come and abide with me. You see, it's, it's all about the presence of God, the experiential presence of God. When you look through the Gospels and you read these books about Jesus and what he accomplished, 
none of these things happened because of his effort. He says this in John 6. He says, none of these things happen because of my efforts. He said, I simply go about with the Father, doing what the Father's doing, and all of these things happen because of that. It's remarkable because when you look at the scriptures again, you see that people actually stole healings from Jesus because they knew the presence of God was there, and if they could just reach in and touch it, they could steal something from him for themselves. There's no effort on Jesus' part that was required for someone to receive healing. Somebody came in and they grabbed hold of the presence of God and received their healing. The model for us is not be holy, it's not work hard, it's not bear fruit, it's abide. And all these things will be given as well. You know, it's, it's interesting, it's so simple, it's, it's simply the way that we think that changes our experience to either striving and effort-driven or abiding. Listen, I want to be clear about this. When I talk about abiding, I'm not talking about you go somewhere and you lay down in a room and you just put music on and you worship. That's not abiding. That's hiding. It is, okay? And see, a lot of us get in our heads that we have to go somewhere to abide with God. We think, if I'm in church on Sunday and the worship is really good, I mean, if that worship team plays, I'll probably be able to abide. But if the other one, yeah, this the, the this, you know, the guy, he's flat a lot, and I just don't abide when he's leading worship. But, you know, most of the time. Or I can go to this prayer meeting, or if I live stream Bethel, you know, I can abide. Um, that's not abiding, okay? Abiding is when everywhere we go, our attention is fixed on our communion and enjoyment of the Father and his presence. That's abiding, See, he says, abide in me and I will abide in you. In other words, Jesus is a hitchhiker wherever we go. And when we turn our attention and our affection toward him in our day-to-day, we find ourselves experiencing him at times we didn't expect or plan. These encounters that we have with God in special moments like in services, I believe, are intended to become our normal. As we grow familiar with him and his presence, it won't affect us the same way, right? How many of you guys have ever had a moment with God where you just found yourself weeping? Yeah, it's amazing. You know you've met God. It went from intellectual and theological to experiential, yeah? When you met God that way, he wants to do that on the regular. And the more we meet him and the more comfortable we get with him, the less we react and shake and weep and cry. I mean, I still cry like a baby every time he shows up, but usually I can get through it rather quickly and try to pretend I'm still normal or at least semi-socially acceptable. I've had God show up in Walmart when I was walking down the aisle. And you're like, oh, no. <laughs> but don't stop. Driving down the road, whoosh. I can't see, Lord. I exalt thee. It's intended to become normal because when we walk in a conscious awareness of his presence, he's allowed to reach out and touch those around us. 
This is what Peter was doing when he walked down the street and people were healed by his shadow. Peter didn't learn to walk down roads and flex the faith muscle so that people would get healed without touching them. It wasn't like he's walking down, he's like, oh, last week I had to lay hands, this week I'm just doing the shooters. You're healed over there. That's not what it was. It was Peter's awareness that God was with him everywhere he went, and the full impact of God's presence was allowed to reach out and touch the earth. Because Peter knew the one with whom he was communing. Peter changed so dramatically from pre-crucifixion to post-receiving of the Holy Spirit. The man who ran and lied about knowing Jesus three times, suddenly a few weeks later is bold enough to stand and preach so that thousands would get saved. How does this happen? Abiding. This is not a transformation that can happen By force of will. It is not a transformation that can happen by force of will. See, so many of us, we're trying to force our transformation by our own will, by our own efforts, by thinking the right thing, by believing the right thing, by agreeing intellectually to the right thing. And God says, if you'll just come to me and abide in me and encounter me and meet with me, I will change you to look like me. John 15, so cool. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine. Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me you can do nothing. When we abide, the fruit is guaranteed because the vine can't change its nature. When an apple tree... This is the good time of year to think of this, unless it snows this week. But when an apple tree starts budding, is it working to do so? What effort does the apple tree have to put forth for apples to pop out? For the branches that are hanging over, are they working? Do you see them sweating, perspiring, laboring for apples to pop out? No. If they've been well pruned, apples are a natural fruit of simply being a part of the vine, the trunk. That's us. Fruit occurs. It's guaranteed when we abide, live, focus our affections and our attentions in him who is divine. Let's jump over to Galatians 5 for a few minutes and we'll finish there. Galatians 5 is this passage about walking by the Spirit it's so, it's so common that it's really easy to read through without stopping to consider what it means. But I say, walk by the Spirit. You will not gratify the desires. I'm sorry, let me say that again. Walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. This is interesting. When you look at that, does he say, walk by the Spirit, and you might not? See, a lot of us, I think we think we're walking by the Spirit most of the time. And yet, our attention is grabbed by all kinds of carnal, sinful, worldly desires constantly. What's being stated in Galatians 5 is that if you walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. When you're abiding in God, you're communing with Him, your affections are on Him, you're experiencing His love, His delight, 
you will not gratify the desires of the flesh, of sin and otherwise. It's a guarantee. This is an incredible thing. I pulled up this e-sword because um, I'm going to go Greek on you. So he goes on to list the works of the flesh. And I'm, I'm going to read some of these because I want us to think about the answer to these desires, to these actions, is actually abiding because it's our guarantee that we won't step into these things. He starts out, the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, and licentiousness. And so most of us go, yeah, those are pretty major, that's not me. And then he gets into idolatry, witchcraft, which is manipulation, hatred, which is just resentment or bitterness toward another person, variance, which is double-mindedness, Emulation, this is King James, so I don't even know what that means. You guys can figure it out. No, I'm kidding. It means jealousy. So it means considering someone else a rival or an enemy. Wrath, which is anger that leads to sin. Strife, which is also an expression of strife, would be gossip. Seditions, which is divisiveness. So it's trying to create division between parties that belong together, and heresies, which is making stuff up in the Bible. So it starts to get hit a little bit closer to home when we see these things. Jealousy, oh, that was, just forget about Wednesday, Lord. Other than that, it was a pretty good week. Envy, right? You start looking around and go, well, he's got this. Man, you know, that guy, he goes on vacation six times a year. Does he even work? Uh, You know, look at their house. You start envy. The response to all things carnal or sinful is not more effort to get away from them. It's not. This will not be conquered as an act of will. The response that leads to victory is giving in. It's giving up. It's pressing in. It's abiding The last place we normally want to go when we're tempted is toward the one that we think is mad at us for being tempted. Guys, it's not sinful to be tempted. It's not. Jesus was tempted in every way. It's impossible for temptation to be the equivalent of sin or Jesus was not sinless. I know I'm not even allowed to say that out loud, but I did. It's not. Temptation isn't sin. So when you're tempted, the right response is to say, Father, coming to you. Father, I need you. Father, to believe in you isn't enough. I need to experience you. I need to know you truly. And when you abide, when you meet with God, the temptation goes away. That's how Jesus was tempted in every way and yet did not sin, was he lived a life of abiding. He lived a life from waking until sleeping where he was abiding with the Father. His attention and his affection was on him everywhere that he went. And so he experienced the affections, the feelings, the emotions, the heart, the desire, the thoughts of the Father 
and it caused him not only to not sin, but also to bear much fruit. Because when you have the presence of God, with it goes the power of God, the affections and love of God, and the mind of Christ. Galatians 5.22, we all know this one, right? But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, goodness, faith, boldness, meekness, temperance. These are not the normal translation, okay? I got hung up there on the meekness. Um, Gentleness and self-control. I got to finish that way or I'll get lost. Fruit of the Spirit. It doesn't say effort required to live by the Spirit. How many of us find ourselves on a daily basis trying to live this way, trying to be this way? Hopefully everybody in the room, right? But we needn't do that. Instead, we have the privilege to come to the Father, be with him as we go about our day. This doesn't mean you need to set aside six hours a day to pray. This doesn't mean that you need to be in the church at 5 a.m. and ask Brent to come in and lead a worship set. This means that when you go, wherever you go throughout your day, you're communing, interacting. Your attention is focused on God wherever you go, doing whatever you do. When we do that, when we walk according to the Spirit, the fruit which naturally occurs through no effort of our own is all of these things in Galatians 5, 22, 23, 24. They are the natural occurrence that comes simply because we're walking with God. I don't know about you guys, but for me, I don't have the energy to continue to try to be this type of Christian that's been painted for us. The only thing I have the energy to do is abide in the Father and allow him to bring about fruit that looks like The Spirit looks like the actions of Jesus in the Gospels. You know, it's interesting. I've read enough Christian books where there's a formula basically to fix you for everything, right? I mean, if we, if you have these types of symptoms, believe this, and the Bible says this, and if you recite it enough times and you tattoo it on the back of your neck, you'll be fine. You'll get over it. And none of those things are true. None of the formulas truly transform. Only the Spirit of God transforms. It's so simple, but so often we go right by it because we're still working according to the ways of the law that we've been set free from. And Jesus and the apostles are calling us to a new type of existence, one that isn't based on our effort, but is ra- rather is based on our relationship and our knowledge and experience of him. When we prioritize knowing God, experiencing God above all else, you'll bear more fruit and you'll look more holy, live more holy, look more like Jesus than you ever could have had you laid forth all this effort on your own. I want to close just by asking those that have been around for a long time to consider whether Kurt's message 
in the letter to the church in Ephesus was maybe a word for you. Some of us have been doing this quite a while. And we've run hard in pursuit of our first love for a lot of years. And as things get busy, it becomes really easy to forget to prioritize abiding, enjoying, communing with our first love. Because the busyness of life is so easy to get pulled into. Bearing fruit is so easy to get pulled into. Our calling, our vision, our mission is so easy to get pulled into that pretty soon we too, like the church in Ephesus, have forsaken our first love and yet we're still running hard like a Christian. And so I'm just going to ask some of you guys whether maybe that was a word for us to say, Father, I'm coming back. I'm coming back. I'm not going to let ministry, fruitfulness, mission, vision, or calling become my primary pursuit. But I'm coming back to you. And then some of you guys maybe have not yet truly encountered or met God so that you know he is. You might still believe that he is, which is great, and it will lead and does lead to salvation. But there is a greater knowledge available to you that's an experiential knowledge where he removes your questions and allows you to experience him in such a way that you know he is who he says he is. No, 2006 is right after we'd gotten married. I was in Tennessee, and um, I was going through this pursuit where I knew, I believed, I was a Christian. You know, I'd read every Christian book, C.S. Lewis and Tozer and the like, right? So I believed, but I'd never, I'd never met him. And I believed, and I'd, I'd hear people talking, and there's arguments against the existence of God, and I believed, and, and I'd get angry, about these arguments, and I'd, I'd want to fight with everyone, and I had some family members, and I'd argue with them all the time, and, you know, I was a master apologist because I had to be, because I had to believe all the right things to be a Christian, right, and to know that God was real. And I remember in 2005 and 2006, going through this, like, 18-month period where I was just crying out from the depths of my heart, I have to meet you. I don't believe you stopped meeting people in the book of Acts. I don't believe that you quit meeting with people when the Bible was published via pen and paper because Gutenberg didn't come out for, you know, a millennia and a half. I don't believe that, God. If you encountered Saul and John and James and Apollos in that one church that was the Vereans that read their Bibles every day, if you encountered them, you surely would encounter me today. And you'd hear stories about this happening throughout the earth, these revivals that would happen. And it's not enough to just believe. And I remember this 18-month period where I'm crying out, God, I have to meet you. I don't want to just believe. I don't want to have an existence that's just believing in an intellectual ascent that you are. I want to know that you are because you meet with me. And I remember fasting for this week in Tennessee. And I'm, in, I'm fasting. It's like, I say a week. That for me, that's like two days. And... Um, I'm just the worst faster in the world. 
And so I'm like two days into this fast, and I feel like the Lord says, go out, get on your knees in the middle of that intersection. It was a really quiet suburb. Okay, it wasn't like downtown. And, and, and yell to the mountains that Jesus is Lord. And I'm like, that is not a good idea. <laughs> and I knew I wasn't going to get hit by a car. It was a four-way stop. Okay, God wasn't trying to kill me. Um, well, he was, but a different kind of kill me. And so we argued back and forth for a few minutes, and finally I'm like, I have to meet you. So I go out, get down on my knees in the middle of this intersection, turn to the mountains, and I yell to the mountains, Jesus is Lord. And then I got up and I ran back in the apartment. <laughs> and nothing happened. Nothing happened. And I'm like, man, that was, I felt like I was, that was it. That was going to be it for me. And it didn't happen. So about a week later, I get a phone call from Pastor Tuttle. He's like, hey, we're doing this thing in the fall. I want you to come preach at the Saturday night service. I'm like, okay. And um, so I'm, I'm prepping for that. And we moved back home. And I'd still been fasting, praying, seeking, crying, a lot of weeping, a lot of anger, wrestling with God through this period. And I come back, and the Friday night before I spoke, we had a service in here, and all the chairs were out. And I remember I'm standing right in the middle, and I'm just, ah, you know, every bit of my emotion screaming at God, I have to meet you. And then, boom! It was like I was literally struck by lightning. And it, I don't know how long it lasted. It felt like it was 10 minutes, but I was just trembling under God, <laughs> he'd shown up. And as soon as this happens, I turn and I touch this girl on the shoulder who's standing next to me, and boom, same thing happens to her, simply because the presence of God was there. I wasn't trying to bear fruit. I wasn't trying to minister. I think I might have accidentally touched her on the shoulder. Boom, same thing happens to her. And from that point on, I've known you are who you say you are. And I've been fortunate to find that he doesn't just want to show up once every 10 years or once every three years. He wants to meet with us in that same capacity daily, sometimes multiple times a day. And he wants to be with us in all of our doings, in all of our goings. So I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up. I'm going to ask you that if, you know, if, you're, if you heard from the Lord when Kurt shared about returning to your first love, I'm going to ask you just... Do what you need to do to get that straightened out. It's so easy in the busyness of life, in the pursuits of kingdom greatness, to accidentally abandon our first love. And for those who haven't yet met or just need another, give God a chance to meet with you, touch you, and let you experience him in a way that will transform you forever. Father, we thank you for your presence. We thank you that this is not an intellectual only faith. That our intellect leads to encounter. Our intellectual ascent of your existence and your presence isn't the end of the road, but it leads to encounter and true knowledge, experiential knowledge of you. I ask that today... For those who've not yet tasted, you release your spirit and your presence on them in a way they've never experienced before. Father, for those who have run hard after you in pursuit of you and have forgotten or lost their way, 
or misprioritized their first love, show them mercy, show them your love, your compassion, and draw them back to you. We love you, Father. Amen. Father, may your blessing rest on these, your people. May that blessing be your presence with them in all their doings and in all their goings. May they bear fruit for you everywhere they go, simply as an overflow of their love and relationship with you. May the miraculous follow them. May the fruit of the Spirit abound in their lives. And above all, may they know your love for them and return it. We love you, Father. Amen. Amen.